Let us pray again before we hear the word. Lord, we give you thanks for you are the giver of life. You're the giver of all good things. But Lord, we also acknowledge life is not easy. And sometimes there's hardships, there are tears, and there are seasons we say goodbye. And, uh, but yeah, Lord, you have been good to us as you have demonstrated through Christ crucified on the cross. So Lord, help us to hear this good news today. Help us to make resolves for our life that will matter for eternity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So the sermon today will be from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 to 5. It's the end of 2023, and we have often heard of the term New Year Resolution. And frankly speaking, I think it's a, a bit of a tired and cliched term. You know, I don't know if I'm being particularly pessimistic at this time of year because it's winter, but I think purely from an anecdotal ex- experience and most people will fail to keep their promise and their resolution beyond February. But I'm not here to shame anyone about it. You know, we like to make New Year resolutions, though we know we often end in disappointment because we often still want to have the tiny hope of making a much needed change in our life. And as we celebrated the birth of Christ in this past month, and as we continue to wait for his return, What do people of God do in this meantime? I think it's quite appropriate to have Christmas in December, you know, from the standpoint of a long winter is still ahead of us. And after all the parties and gifts, there are much weariness and gloominess. And that is our Christian experience, isn't it? You know, we rejoice in the reality that Christ has already come, but that we're still living in a not yet period of the timeline because the world is not right. Now we still have sin within. So I think that's another reason we like to make resolutions because we want and we need some kind of motivation and determination to help us to get through this grind and weary days of life. So I want to encourage you today to make a resolution. And it is not a new year resolution, It's a lifelong commitment. And that is an ongoing commitment in the gospel. For many of you, you have made this commitment already before. And I want to encourage you to continue make that resolution in your life. And if you have not made that confession before, if you have not decided to follow Christ, I hope in today's sermon I can convince you that this will be the resolution you will ever make. So Christians, keep believing in the good news that Jesus Christ came to die for your sin and in him that you will have eternal life. And we must keep proclaiming this gospel. We must keep abiding in this gospel. And we must keep growing in the gospel. Proclaiming, abiding, growing in the gospel. Let that be our resolution, not just for the next two months, but for our whole life. So first, we must always proclaim the gospel as our central message. 
So in our passage today, Paul recounts the time when he first came to Philippians, oh, came to Corinthians. He did not come with a message of lofty speech or wisdom, but the only message that he desired to make known among them was Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why is Paul bringing this up? You know, is he simply being an old man who wants to talk about the good old days? No. The Corinthian church is going through some serious divisions. In chapter 1, Paul said he heard the troubling news that there were quarrelings among the believers in Corinth. The church was divided over the leaders they should follow. Some followed Paul, some followed Apollos, some followed Cephas, who was Peter, and those who don't really have a one particular apostle to follow, they say they follow Jesus Christ. See, they're not dividing over doctrines or beliefs, but rather the rhetoric, refinement, and argumentative brilliance of the leaders that they prefer. So the city of Corinth is pretty much like Toronto today. It's a major Roman city. It is heavily influenced by the Greco-Roman culture, which puts heavy emphasis on intellectual proudness and rhetoric brilliance. Those who have you know, experience in classical education would know that logic and rhetoric are essential subjects in classical studies, and which can tra- trace its roots in Greco-Roman times. And there's certainly nothing wrong with that. If anything, logic and rhetoric should be you know, taught in our education, I believe. But when believers are dividing themselves, and they're dividing the church by the charisma and the intellectual ability of the leaders, that is a serious problem. And this is why Paul thought it necessary to remind them that when he first came to Corinth, he did not come with lofty words or wisdom. You know, he didn't come with superiority of language that Greco-Romans would often admire. And his message was not what a culture at the time would highly esteem. It doesn't mean he's uneducated. In fact, we know Paul was trained as a highly esteemed Pharisee before he became a Christian. And he could speak, he could certainly speak into the Roman culture. But Paul made a decision when he first came to the Corinthians that he decided to know nothing among them except Christ, Jesus Christ crucified. The word decided is not a whimsical decision like, you know, where are we going to go for lunch after service? It is a careful and deliberate decision. It is a resolution after much thoughts and planning. And this is what he decided, that he is resolved to make known nothing, nothing among the Corinthians except the good news of Jesus Christ. Because that is what matters the most for our faith and for the church. You see, Paul did not convert the non-believers with refined words and brilliant arguments. He did not establish the church with carefully crafted programs and events. Believers were added to the church because Paul's message throughout his ministry is the good news of Jesus. And that is a power for his ministry. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jews, then to the Gentile. The power to save 
is never determined by how eloquent our speech is or how persuasive our arguments are. You can have great events with loud music. You can have charismatic teachers or humorous ones. You may be even able to generate hundreds of confessions or sinners' prayers afterwards. But unless the gospel is preached, there is no genuine faith. Why is that? Why is a simple phrase like Jesus Christ crucified so central to Paul's ministry? And what power does that have over everything else? You know, again, that's because conversion does not happen through human endeavors. It is a supernatural event. To the world, you know, religion is a social structure where one commits to a particular sect of beliefs and you know, he or she follows the rules established by the group. But a Christian religion is not a man-made religion. That we don't become a Christian by being born into a Christian family. You don't choose Christianity to be a religion like picking out a student group to join university or you know, even which person you will marry. You don't simply join a church or become a com- becoming a part of a community of believers by taking class number one or number two. And I know the irony of saying that as one who organizes and leads those membership classes. You are a Christian. We become a Christian because of a supernatural miracle that took place at some point in your life. You are a Christian because God has granted you a new life, a new spiritual life. That you who were once spiritually dead in your sin were awakened in your heart a new and profound desperation for a savior to rescue you. To rescue you not just from the brokenness of the world, not just from the evil of other men, but from your very own sin that you have committed in the every day of your life. And how does this happen? How does a miracle take place? It is by the proclamation and the hearing of the good news of Jesus Christ. And the good news begins with the terrible news that we are sinners who are condemned to death because we have no desire to turn away from the path of destruction because we love living in sin and causing pain and wrecking havoc in our own lives and the world around us. Our sin opposes the perfect will of God and for his image bearer. We want to be king in our life instead of God who gave us our life. So what goes through your mind when you hear this? Does it make you cringe or, comf- or uncomfortable? How dare this guy tell me I'm living in sin, I'm destined to hell? Or does it make you young? You know, he's just a religious nuthead. He, he doesn't know really, you know, he doesn't really know anything. Or maybe you yawn because you have heard of this message hundreds of times already at church. But some of you resonate with this because you know that this was you. You know, this was you and this was me before hearing the gospel and receiving this new life from the Spirit. And this is the miracle I'm talking about. The same message, the same gospel. Some are angry, some are indifferent, but some responded with a desperation to cry out for the mercy of God. You see, The gospel is just words, 
anyone can read it, you know, can hear it. It is plain, it is simple. But yet, anyone who came to believe in Jesus Christ is through hearing this simple but powerful message. This is the miracle. In a world where everyone is a victim of someone else and the problem always lies in something else, Christians, you have owned up to the problems in your life, that you have confessed that you are a sinner and you repented from your own ways. That is a miracle. In a world where self-autonomy is king, and yet you would trust the word of God instead of your own fleshly desire. You will even deny yourself of the pleasures that others would happily enjoy because you know it contradicts to God's will. That is a miracle. In a world where we need affirmations from others, you know, we see representations in media, in the culture, but you are secure and grounded in who God made you. And you fear God more than anyone else or anything else. And that is a miracle. Christians, don't take this for granted. This doesn't just happen to anyone. You may come from generations of faithful believers and you and your siblings have heard the same message growing up, but some of you may be the only one who are still believing. You may have grown up going to church with your friends, you know, but they have strayed away from faith as they got older, but you are still here. You may have lived a sinful lifestyle for years with your buddies, but then one day you heard the gospel and you repented of your sin and decided to follow Jesus. And then you go to your friends with excitement with this message, but instead of responding in repentance and faith, they only distanced themselves from you and your friendship withered. Friends, that's the point I'm trying to make here. Your faith is not a result of human work. It cannot be simply rationalized as a cause and effect. It is a miracle from God. You know, you didn't come to a saving faith because someone bedazzled you with fancy words or, or outwitted you with clever arguments. You were not saved because you were inherently more humble or more open-minded about religion. You are saved because you heard the good news of Jesus Christ and that he was crucified for your sin. And by the power of his Holy Spirit, he awakened in you a spiritual rebirth. And you responded with repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And if you have not trusted in Jesus as your Savior yet, because you still have treasures of sin in your life that you are not ready to give up, but somehow you want to lose those desires, you want to experience a miracle of freedom from sin and the assurance of eternal life in Jesus Christ, then I will encourage you to just call upon the name of our Lord Jesus. Ask God to keep softening your heart. Know that even the desire of salvation does not come from you. So pray to God that he will continue to show you his holiness and his love for you. Keep asking God that God will give you the faith to believe that Jesus Christ has died for you and he has saved you if you believe in him. And that is the message Paul 
proclaim to the Corinthians. And that is a foundation of the church. And that is what knits our hearts together. No lofty words or human wisdom could ever replace the good news of Jesus. And that's what we will continue to proclaim as well as a church. You will not be entertained here in GFC with witty humor or jaw-dropping productions. We will not preach a message to you to elevate your self-esteem or promise you a false assurance of a prosperous life right now. We will not give you a list of do's and don'ts that will help you to get ahead of your worries and your anxiety. We will not point the source of all our problems to society or to the world we live in. And we will not seek to resolve all world issues and geopolitical conflicts. We want to align our mission to Paul's that we would know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that is our resolve in the gospel, to keep proclaiming it, to keep proclaiming it to yourself, Christian. And our second resolve today is, we will resolve to abide in the gospel. So to correct the divisions in Corinthian church, Paul continued to draw their attention to his experience with the Corinthians in verse three, that in weakness and in fear and much trembling, his speech and message was not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of spirit and power. So again, you know, in that culture of the day, it is the strong and the wise people who are honored and respected among the crowd. And that when they speak, especially with their persuasive arguments, and big words, people listen. And that's not different, again, from the culture we're in, right? Personal appearance matters, even if we don't like to admit it. You know, we tend to listen to people whose image matches what we desire to, to achieve. You know, I would much rather listen to an athletic guy telling me how to run, how to exercise, than someone with a pelt belly. And we want to learn how to achieve success from people who look successful, right? Think of Obama or TED Talk speakers or even the YouTubers these days who with great production and aesthetics. But Paul, when he came to minister to Corinthians, he did not come with any outward qualifications that others would look up to because his confidence does not come from his reputation or his image but his confidence is in God and in a message from God. And that's, that's, the, that's the way Paul describes himself here, that he is weak, he is in fear, and he is trembling because he wants to show the Corinthians that humanly speaking, he is an unimpressive man. He did not come and he didn't fulfill any conventions that would have drawn a big crowd in Acts 18, verse 1 to 17, it's a, big, it's a long passage, but we have an account of Paul's first visit to the Corinth, where he was opposed and reviled by the local Jews, that who later united to attack Paul, and they dragged him to the court. And the Lord had to reveal to Paul in a vision to exhort him not to be afraid and keep on speaking the gospel. And that is why Paul is still in the ministry of proclaiming the gospel because his power comes from God. And he brought up his weak and fearful state 
not to add to his personal credibility because there is none, but it is to demonstrate it is a power of God alone. And Paul here in verse four is again contrasting the message between the possible words of wisdom and a demonstration of spirit and power. And as we have explained earlier, you know, by plausible words of wisdom, Paul is referring to the art of persuasion by the means of rhetoric devices that were popular among the philosophers and the sage of the time. But without using any of that, Paul pressed down to preach the gospel, and all the result was a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit. And the reliability of Paul's message of the gospel is demonstrated through the working of the gospel in the conversion of believers. His weakness and his fear not only detract from the power of the gospel, but only highlights the sustaining power of the gospel in a weak and frail man. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 to 10, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power, so that Christ's power may rest on me. And that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in results, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions and difficulties, for when I am weak. I am strong. And this is what kept Paul abiding through trials and suffering. It is the gospel message. The hardship cannot defeat Paul. In fact, they're the means for Paul to demonstrate the power of the gospel. And that's why we must keep abiding the gospel because it is what gives us life and power to live faithfully. Christian's life will not always be a picture of triumph. And though we have obtained victory over death, over sin, because of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross on our behalf, but we are not in eternity yet. As we wait for the return of Christ, we will still experience sin on this earth and in ourselves. There will still be intense sorrow and sufferings, as many of you have experienced or are experiencing today. But in the faith of our own sin and trying circumstances, we can affirm the grace of God in our salvation and in our temptations and trials. That's again, because our faith was never dependent on us. That he who began a good work in you will surely bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the founder and perfecter of your faith. In fact, if you ever think obedience on you, uh, depends on you alone, remember what Paul's rebuke is in Galatians 3, verse 3. That are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirits, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And there are days when we feel weak and the life is hard, but that's not at odds with what we should expect living on this side of eternity. And in fact, the day when you feel like you got everything, and that you're comfortable and you're confident in your own ability to go through life, that's when you are tempted to steer away from the gospel. This is not the wisdom of the world that we're used to hearing, isn't it? 
the wise men of the world will tell you that you need to realize your potential. You need to pursue the authentic self. Maximize your pleasure today because that's all you have to live for. Okay, maybe they won't say this out loud, but that is true according to their worldview. Because in their worldview that you are basically good. Your shortcomings and weaknesses are the results of circumstances around you. And this life is all you got. So live boldly and pursue your dreams without regret or restraint. What you need is not repentance and faith, but a system. You need positive people with positive vibes. You're not a bad person. You just need therapy. By the way, I'm not against therapy. You know, it certainly has its use and it's necessary for many. And therapy with biblical worldview, I believe, is a powerful tool. But what I am saying here is systems, habits, therapy alone cannot replace or, be, or, skipped, cannot replace or skip over repentance and faith. Our greatest need is to be reconciled to God the Father. So let's get that right first before seeking solutions to other problems in our life. And sometimes, really, you cannot make sense of sufferings and trials. The story of Job has taught us that, that there are mysteries in life that is not revealed to us. What God desired for us is not to understand all his wills and intricacies of everything, but that he wants us to trust him, that we will trust his steadfast love and faithfulness, even when life does not make sense to us. And that is the good news of Jesus Christ, that while we were sinners, he died for us. So worldly wisdom can never resolve our problems. And frankly, but in the gospel, we have assurance of life, even if our struggle remains. But the beauty of the gospel is that our struggle no longer define us, that we can be weak, we can be fearful and trembling right now, but that we are no longer ashamed. We are children of God, travelers on earth. We are in the world, but not of the world. And we have the hope that one day all our sins will be erased and our broken bodies will be healed and our Lord Jesus will make everything right. And that again is the good news, friends. Hold firm to that abiding in it, even when life is weary and hard. So Paul came to Corinth with a singular focus on preaching the gospel. He has demonstrated obedience and abiding the gospel in midst of his weaknesses and sufferings. He gave his whole life to the ministry of the gospel because he desires to see believers grow in the gospel. And that will be our third point today, grow in the gospel. In verse 5, Paul states that the purpose of the ministry of the gospel is so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And that is consistent to the previous two points. Right? Paul keeps hammering this contrast here you know, between the wisdom of men and the power of God. Paul again rejects using the wisdom of men or appearing, to, you know, appearing as someone who is charismatic and strong to attract people to the gospel because he wants to make it very clear that our faith is not a work of men, but faith is rested upon Jesus and Jesus alone. 
Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, Our gospel came to you simply not with words, but with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. And you know how we lived among you for your sake. The power of the gospel is from God, and particularly the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, that he forms in us the conviction of sin, and he regenerates us with a new desire to follow Christ. And, com- and convert- conversions through any other means than the gospel it is circumventing the work of the Holy Spirit. It is distrust of the means that God has given us. Likewise, we do not graduate from the gospel after we become a Christian. Gospel is fundamental, but we do not ever move on from it. It is the power not only to awaken a dead person to a new life, it is a sustenance for believers in their ongoing growth. How do we grow in the gospel? Well, one of the catchphrases from the guru of modern, modern day is to practice gratitude. It is not wrong on its own, but what do we give thanks for? And who do we give thanks to? What is the basis of thanksgiving if we're just a bunch of biochemicals evolved from a singular cell? But Christians, you have the answer and you have the reason to give thanks each day because the message of the gospel. And that's why we must proclaim the gospel to ourselves each day so that every day we're reminded from Lamentations 3, verse 22 to 23, that the steadfast love of Yahweh never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I know I need to hear this every day because like most people, I do not wake up in the morning bursting with joy and energy, especially not on days like this. But the gospel gives us, gives you, every reason to rejoice and celebrate. Again, you know, modern gurus will tell you all kinds of habits and practices, you know, to live a a productive and healthy life. But in the end, all they can give you are tools. It still depends on you to use them. But the gospel solution is not to develop a stronger will to resist temptations. Gospel solutions is not to do this and to not to do that. I mean, how often do you wish you could be more disciplined? See, the gospel solution is the grace of God. That first, that we are already forgiven from our sins through our faith in Jesus Christ. Your shortcomings, your weaknesses are covered by Jesus. There's no shame and there's no guilt in being weak and frail. But also the gospel solution is that once we were slaves to our sin and in all its desires, that you are not recipient of God's unconditional blessing and we are granted the righteousness of Christ and the new life he gave us. And in this new life, God gave, gave us the Holy Spirit to work out our salvation with fear and trembling to bring out the reality of this new life in Jesus. So turn to God when you're tempted. Remember the gospel. Remember the holiness of God and the sinfulness of your sin. Remember the destructive nature and the promise of Satan 
to lure you to sin, but also remember the work of Christ to save you and to free you. Remember that your new identity as a child of God. So preach that message to yourself. Friends, you know, it's a weird thing to say this to you, but I want to grow old with you. I want to grow with you in our faith, in our maturity in Jesus Christ together. You know, worldly growth means becoming someone who is capable of setting goals and achieving your, your dreams you know, by hard works or smart systems. Worldly growth is becoming one who can provide for others and not depending on anyone else. Worldly growth is being able to successfully negotiate and convince others to find common grounds with you, but in reality, that is what you have wanted all along. But growth in God, our growth in the faith is opposite. It means becoming more dependent on God. It become, it, it, our growth in faith means more reliant on the means that God has given us for life. And it means that we can take initiative to set goals and make plans, but we were always submitting the results and the means into God's hand. Growing in our faith means becoming more aware of our sinful desires and more sensitive to our actions and thoughts according to the word of God. Growing our faith means becoming more humble and more vulnerable to confess our sins with one another and that we are not proud or scared to ask for forgiveness or for seek prayers. Growth in our faith means we don't always need to have our ways and we don't always need to be acknowledged, but that we will contribute and to serve gladly and joyfully and not all of our own interests, but counting others' interests more significant than ourselves. Growing in the faith means we will continue to love one another. We'll love one another deeply and vulnerably. We'll love those who are hard to love. We'll love those who are inconvenient to love. We'll love those who are different from us. And we will love those even if they have sinned against us. And we will love even if they may leave. And we will love even if we are the ones called to leave. We can love even when it's costly because God has loved us with the price of his son. So friends, we need a gospel for all of us. It is a message that can be summarized in a short phrase like Jesus Christ and him crucified, or it can be written in volumes of books. We will never exhaust our learning and understanding of the gospel. And we will never stop needing and applying the gospel. So let us continue to resolve ourselves in the gospel. Let us keep proclaiming the gospel in season and out of season. Let us keep abiding in the gospel in gloomy days or sunny days. And let us keep growing the gospel 2024 and beyond until the day we see our Lord Jesus face to face. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful news of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we confess so often we forget how good this news is. 
because we forget how sinful sin is and we neglect how holy and righteous you are. Oh, but Lord, while we were unfaithful, you are always faithful and your steadfast love endures forever. So Lord, we pray that each day, each morning, that we will proclaim this gospel to our own soul so that we may abide and obey the gospel throughout the day, that we will grow in the gospel with the aid of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.